Father in heaven, we come uh, to this which is your word and we pray that you would help us. Our fingers are nimble enough by your grace to open its pages. And so now we pray that you would grant to us a mind to grab a hold of this, hearts to uh, embrace the truth that uh, by your spirit you would come o- overcome any resistance that we have to this word, uh, that we would receive it full and clear as from you. Uh, work it now within us deeply, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you to turn to Hebrews in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I want to read verses 1 through uh, 7. We've covered 1 through 3. I won't get all the way through 7, but I want to read that piece this morning. Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, please. Hear the word of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. <clears throat> Excuse me. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, uh, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, uh, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, obviously, there are many words in Christianity that are important to us. Obviously, the key word, Jesus, uh, the word gospel, the word grace. Uh, none, I suppose, more important in living out the Christian life than this word Faith, the author of Hebrews, quoting an Old Testament passage in verse uh, 38 of chapter 10, puts it like this. He says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul quotes that same verse in Romans in chapter 1. And it comes from uh, the Old Testament prophet uh, Habakkuk, uh, who uh, looked upon life and didn't see what he expected to see. And so this word comes from, from God directly to the prophet. Uh, God spoke this to him to tell him that those who are righteous will in fact live by faith. He puts it like this in Habakkuk in chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. So God's saying, here's the vision. I want you to put this out. It's the truth. And then he goes on to say this. Uh, If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Uh, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And so in living out the Christian life, it's necessary for us to do that, uh, to live uh, by faith. And this word faith and its accompanying kinds of words in the scripture, belief and trust, Obviously crucial to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. By grace we have been saved through 
uh, faith important in that regard. Uh, uh, now we have been justified by faith. And therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can build upon this. In fact, this word faith is of such importance to us that Jude, when he writes to a group of people, uh, simply uses the word faith as a synonym for Christianity. He says he wants to commend those who have contended for the faith. And he wants us to continue to do that. When one talks about the faith, they could simply be referring to Christianity, to our understanding of God as a whole. So faith is important to us. So what is it? Well, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we dealt with Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. That is, when something hasn't arrived yet, but we're certain that it will, we live by faith. If it's already here, we don't need faith. But if it hasn't yet arrived in its fullness, then we live by faith. The assurance comes not by way of the strength of our faith or the sincerity of our faith, but the trustworthiness of the object of our faith. It isn't the strength of our faith. Now, now having strong faith in a weak object can sometimes cause people to do heroic things. Sports teams, by believing for a while, have played way above their head. But as we all know, that after a while, it all settles down and you know the strength of that team. By believing in a weak, untrustworthy object, strongly does not make it any more likely to be true. Simply by believing sincerely. People are sincerely wrong all the time. The key is, is the object of one's faith trustworthy? Can the object of one's faith produce that which is promised. And so when we think of, uh, of, of faith biblically, we're thinking about faith in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is he, in fact, trustworthy to provide all that he's promised? If so, then our hope is in him. Our faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things uh, not yet seen. And what we hope for, obviously, from God in a word is life, in two words is eternal life. That is acceptance by him, forgiveness of sins, entering into relationship with him, uh, knowing him, uh, living, yes, forever, but not simply living forever in terms of time, but living forever in terms of quality, living forever in his very presence, blessed, if you will, by him. That's what we're hoping for. That's what he's promised. And that's reasonable. See, faith isn't unreasonable. It isn't that when we come by faith, we stop thinking. But our faith is beyond reason because it's based on revelation. That is, we don't reason ourselves to faith. The truth is revealed and we trust. We don't reason to it, we reason from it. We're thinking beings. We can't help but be. I mean, we're reasonable people. We're rational people. Uh, we have minds. We're reflective. We're cognizant of the things around us, and we reflect upon our lives and the lives of others. We look out back into the past, and we think about that. We look at the present, and we plan accordingly. We look into the future and, and base our lives there. 
So we're thinking people. But we're to think, we're to reason on the basis of the revelation that God has given to us. We trust Him. That He's the wise one. That He's the one who knows. And so we trust in Him. And so when we say faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, we know that we don't see God, but He has made promises to us. We don't see the full realization of all that God has promised to us, but we believe Him that he will deliver on all of those, and those will indeed come to pass. Thus, in the King James Version, this Hebrews 11.1 1 is translated, the faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And so there's a sense in which, by faith, we can see it. The very evidence that, yes, this is true. And by faith, we can enjoy the very benefits, even, of that which is to come. The joy that we can live in knowing that even though things aren't quite right at the moment, they will be. The peace of knowing that even though things aren't as they're going to be, that they will be, and that God is indeed with us, working even now. And so faith, you see, lives now with a measure of blessing concerning that which is to come. Now faith is important as well because it's the way in which God commends us. That is, in a sense, God approves of us. Notice how he puts it here in verse 2 of chapter 11. For by it the people of old received their commendation. That is, God's own witness, God's own testimony. Yes, that's right. Their mind. Uh, he says it of this man, Abel, uh, that he was commended as righteous. Enoch, that he pleased God by faith. Uh, Noah, that he was became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. It's important because God testifies of those who have faith that, yes, they are in fact mine. And thus, you see, we come to him. Now, a question that might come to mind is this. Why is it that God commends faith and not obedience? I mean, shouldn't obedience please him as well? I mean, why isn't uh, the passage saying that we're commended by obedience, why is it by faith? The answer, of course, is there's no obedience apart from faith. You see, notice verse 6. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him, the him there is God, of course. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, in order to please God, we must believe that he exists. Now you might think, what a strange thing to write in the Bible to a group of people who believe God. I mean, these people in Hebrews, by and large, they believe in God. And, and he's, he's pulling them back, at least some, out of uh, turning their backs on God. But by and large, these would be people of faith. He, he continues to say that about them. So why is it that he's saying, if you want to please God, you must believe that he exists? Didn't they believe that he exists? And you could answer, yes. But are there not moments in time when you wonder if God... Read the Psalms. During times of difficulty, people begin to wonder, is he? Does he? Will he? 
Where is he? So he says, listen, if you want to please him, you must believe that he is, that he exists. And not some vague notion of who God is. Not some God as we define him. Not some God as we understand him. Uh, but God, as he's revealed in the scripture. I mean, that's the point of it. That's the context of this. When the author of Hebrews says, believe that he is, he believes this particular God, this very sovereign one, the creator of all that is, this one who says, I am God and there is none other. This very God who says, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. I'm it. I'm the very one. This very one who gives out his name, who says, I am. You remember that? Remember when Moses was having his little burning bush experience that uh, 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 God was calling him to go back to Egypt. It wasn't a pleasant thought for Moses to go back to Egypt. He has fled there in fear and so forth. And so God comes to Moses in that great scene and he says to Moses, you need to go back. And Moses, in trying to get out of it and asking questions and so forth and so on, put this one to God. He says, all right, if I go back, who is it that I would say has sent me? And God simply said, well, I'll give you my name. My name's I am. Which is simply, in a sense, the verb to be. God is saying, here I am. I've always been. I always will be. That's who I am. This is the very God of God. He says, listen, I'm self-existent. I exist because I exist. Because I'm God, I am. Self-existent. I'm self-sufficient. I need absolutely nothing, no one, to keep me going. I simply am self-existent, I'm self-determining, I'm self-sufficient. I'm independent. I am. And so you see, when we come by faith, we must believe, when we draw near to God, we must believe that He is who He is and none other. That is, He's holy. And then we must believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Notice again, verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And when we say he rewards them, it isn't that, that you need to bring enough so that, to, so that you can be rewarded by him. He goes, oh, you finally, you finally hit the jackpot. Now I'm going to give you the reward. No, it's that... You're saying, he's holy. Is there any benefit at all in me going to him? Will he really receive me? Will he really accept me? Will he really help me? Will he really satisfy me? You see, if you draw near to God, you come to him believing that he is who he is. And you also believe that he's good. That he's just. That there is benefit in going to him. That he will receive you as you go to him. That he will help you as you go to him. That he will satisfy you as you go to him. Jesus said, He who comes to me will never hunger or thirst. That's utter satisfaction. So the one who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who truly seek him. Seek him for what? 
Seek him for acceptance. Seek him for forgiveness. Seek him for righteousness, to be in right relationship to him. Seek him for him, for his very presence in your life. To seek him in the context of of a relationship with him. And remember, when we're seeking him, we're seeking God. And so we're seeking this relationship with one who is the Lord. So this relationship looks very much like one who is the Lord and one who is submissive to him. And so when we come to seek a relationship to him, to be with him, we're seeking this relationship that says, I will be in submission to him because he's the Lord. We're coming in humility because this one to whom we come for relationship is the one who is our teacher. And so we come to listen, we come to learn, we come to be discipled by him. This one who is, uh, to whom we look for relationship, we seek for relationship, is Lord and teacher. But he's also friend, he says. So we come to this one who will care for us, who will be kind to us, who will help us. As a friend helps a friend. And we come to this very one who is... Lord, who's our teacher, our friend, and we come, and because he's God, we come to worship him, to bow down, you see, before him. Thus, if we're going to come, if we're going to draw near to God, we must draw near by faith, believing that he is. We don't see him, but we believe that he is, because he's revealed himself to us. Thus, we believe him. We believe that he is and that he'll receive us, that he, in fact, is a rewarder of those who truly seek us. It's that that's commended, coming to him by faith. And you say, well, why not obedience? Why isn't it that we're commended because of obedience? And the answer, of course, is there can't be obedience without faith. Because if we're going to believe God, we must believe that he is, that he's the one who defines our lives. And thus we look to him to answer the question, who am I? What's my purpose in life? Who am I to be? We don't devise that on our own. That would be thinking that we could know more than God about our own existence. To be obedient, we must first come to him and say, who are we? What are we to do? That's the first step in obedience to God. And that's a step of faith. It's a step, step confessing our own weakness and his own rightness. And then secondly, we come and we say, all right, if that's what I'm to do, how am I to do it? And with what strength can I do it? And then we come and we observe our own weakness and we embrace our own weakness and we say, all right, give me the strength to do it. We don't feel the strength. We don't see the strength. We trust in him who will give the strength. And thus we obey by faith. And not only that, you see, when we come in obedience, by faith we're trusting that his way will satisfy completely. That no other way will satisfy. And so you see, our sin, really, our disobedience, is at its roots unbelief. It's simply saying, I think I know the right way. God doesn't. He's wrong. I'm right. Or my way will satisfy more than his way. Therefore, I'm right, he's wrong. That's the very basis of disobedience is unbelief. Thus, the very basis of obedience is faith, trusting God. We pick a sin. 
run it through. Isn't it a measure then as its basis disobedience? Take your lying, for instance. Right? When you when you tell a lie, don't look at me like you don't lie. That's a lying look. Right? I mean, we lie. Why? Because we don't believe God. Because we don't believe that truth is better than lie. We don't believe that truth is more satisfying than lying at that moment in time. And so when we confess our sin, we're confessing this unbelief that we didn't trust him at that point in time. But take your anxieties. Right? Take your discontentedness. Take your lustful thoughts. At the very base of that is unbelief. That we don't believe that God's way is right. We don't believe he'll give us the strength to overcome. And we don't believe that following after him will really satisfy us. But he says, if you want to please God, if you want to draw nearer to him, you must believe that he is. That he's God. That he's righteous. That he's right. That he's holy. You see, when we believe that God is, that he is the great I am, uh, that speaks volumes because, you see, that says by very definition that he's the owner of all that is. Because he is. He's the creator of all that is. And as creator, he has patent rights over us. Therefore, he's the one who defines us and directs us. And it's in, in him that we should have our delight. And disobedience denies that. Because we don't believe, you see. So he commends our faith. And you'll notice, in, if you read through Hebrews chapter 11, which we will over the next year. Um, it's a long chapter. Um, you'll find what's talked about is what people did. Yet it's their faith that's commended. Why? Because faith always leads to action. Faith leads to action that's consistent with it. Faith leads to action which is consistent with believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And so we find in these particular cases, I've read just three names of people who lived uh, before the great flood. Abel, Enoch, uh, and Noah who lived before it and indeed after it. And their faith is commended, but it's tied up with what they did, an offering that was made, a life that was lived, pleasing to God, uh, an ark that was built. So we come, you see, on the basis of faith. Uh, Peter puts it like this in First Peter in chapter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's saying, all right, here's the deal. Here's, this is true for all those who come by faith. Uh, you've been blessed by God. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, because he lives, because you believe in him, you live as well. And there is an inheritance for you. And it's being kept for you in heaven by faith. And it's going to be revealed to you in the last time. All right? So you're okay. Okay, that's my hope. 
all there that's stored up for me that Christ has bought and Christ has wrought for me. There it is. Now he says, I want you to live by faith. And then he throws in a little kicker. Verse 6, in this you rejoice. Yes, of course, you would rejoice because you know that's there and you know it's certain. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Wait a minute. I didn't sign up for trials. I signed up for heaven. I signed up for the inheritance. I signed up for the blessing. I signed up for all of that. Eternal life and forgiveness. Yes, yes, yes. But now you're saying there's trouble. Fiberius trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, all right, there's going to be trouble. So there's a sense in which we're going to experience now that which seems very different than what we've been promised. But he's saying, hold on. It's all of the same substance. It's all the same thing. This faith is tested and proven genuine. And in the midst of that, notice what he says, verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He says, it's all the same stuff. Live by faith. And in the midst of that, what you'll see is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. You'll start to see it. You'll start to realize it. And that will bring you So I want you to live by faith. Now, these three people uh, who lived uh, by faith that I've read about, Abel and Enoch and Noah, I'm going to just mention Noah and Enoch today and talk about Abel. But you'll notice they had some things in common. As I said, their faith in some sense was commended. They were seen as righteous by God because of faith. Uh, but they had some differences. Uh, the interesting difference that I find between these three people is that their lives took very different turns in relationship to death. Abel lived by faith and was killed. Enoch lived by faith and never died. Noah lived by faith and everybody else died. Uh, and so you can't just say, well, a person lives by faith, therefore their life's going to look like this. Their lives look quite a bit different in regard to that very basic thing, life and death. But we also see that they have a little different uh, things for us to learn. We'll talk about Noah later. But Noah is probably the most famous of the three, I suppose, in a very real way. But he was called to something. God gave him a word about something that was going to happen. And it wasn't going to happen for more than 100 years. And, and he did, needed to live in faith arranging his life around this word that a flood was going to come and that he was to build this ark. And he did it in such a way that he received the jeers of others, the ridicule of others, as he staked his whole life on this word of God and this word from God. And his very faith preached righteousness, indeed, the very condemnation to all those who didn't believe 
that he was guaranteed that he would have an inheritance of righteousness. Enoch was a man, the scripture said, who walked with God. That's next week. If I can figure out what that means. So if I skip on to Noah, you'll know I'm still working on that expression. You'd be kind enough not to say you didn't figure that out, did you? We've got probably 20 more years together, so I'll figure it out. Maybe. But Enoch walked with God, and in walking with God, God was pleased with him in such a way to say, here's what happens to those with whom I'm pleased. I take them to myself. And it gives us a picture, a snapshot of that inheritance of resurrection. That he who believes in me will never die. That will die physically. Chances are we're not going to be able to do the Enoch thing. But it's a glimpse, an image of those who live by faith, who please me. They enter into my very presence. But this man, Abel, and we know some of him, not a great deal. But the interesting expression about Abel that we need to pay attention to is that the author of Hebrews says that he still speaks. And so we need to ask the question, what's he saying? What's Abel saying to us by faith? And what's amazing is we don't have any recorded words of Abel in the scripture. Genesis chapter 4. We have a description of him. We, we were told some things about him. But what we have with Cain, we've got some words from him, but his, his, his older brother who killed him. But we don't have words of Abel. You'd think if he's going to speak to us, then he'd use words. But he doesn't. He speaks to us by faith. And he speaks to us by faith even now. And so the question for us is, what's he saying? Well, you remember, I suppose, the story. In fact, let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of God, with the help of the Lord. And again, uh, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, came, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It desires for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother I said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? And so forth and so on. So you, you know the story. Cain and Abel, brothers, of, uh, come from Adam and Eve, uh, their first children. Um, Abel was a shepherd, essentially. Uh, Cain was a farmer. Came time uh, to give an offering to the Lord, to come before the Lord, to worship the Lord. Uh, it made sense, as we're reading along through this account, that that, uh, that Cain would bring that from the work of his hands, that from the field, and so he did that. Um, uh, Abel brought uh, the firstborn, the fat portions of the animal. Uh, to bring the fat portion uh, means he had to kill it, of course, and the fat portion uh, isn't the portion of the meat that you and I cut off, or at least when our wives are watching, um, 
But it's, it's the best part of the meat. It's the marbled part of the meat. It's the tenderest part of the meat. It's, it's the best part. And so he brings the fat portion, as the priest later would bring the fat portions and burn uh, before the Lord. So he brings a blood offering, a sacrifice offering. And the scriptures say that God received Abel's offering, but not Cain's. Question, why? The answer given by the author of Hebrews is that one was brought by faith, that is Abel's, Cain's was not. That is, that is Abel, in some sense, was believing that God is, that he's holy, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So he was seeking God. And he wanted God, and so he brings this offering with, from a heart of faith. Cain, on the other hand, didn't. Whatever that means, he didn't come by faith. He didn't bring it by faith. He didn't, believing, didn't come believing that God is, is holy, that God is. He didn't come seeking God as a rewarder of those who come to him. But I can't get beyond the offerings themselves. Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention it explicitly. Certainly, their faith would influence what they brought. Certainly, what they understood to be true about God would influence what they would bring. And we have to think that Adam shared with his sons about his own experiences with God. Do you remember Adam's experiences with God? In the beginning, they were great He walked with God, the scripture said, in the cool of the garden. And then you remember the situation where Adam and Eve sinned. Adam taking the brunt of the responsibility for that sin, the very sin of Adam. And you remember after Adam sinned against God, what happened? He tried to hide from God in two ways. One, he tried to hide his naked body by decorating himself with fig leaves. And then, of course, he ran to hide so that God wouldn't find him. And Adam calls to, God calls to Adam as if God doesn't know where Adam is, but he calls to him, where are you? I think Adam was like a little three-year-old going, you can't see me, you know, here I am. I got fig leaves on now, you won't recognize me. I think I'm somebody else, like there's other people around here. But, um, but he tries to hide and God calls him and, and, and Adam then eventually comes out, if you will, Blames his wife, but he still comes out. Ultimately blames God because he's the one who gave him such a wife. But you remember what God did. In some sense, Adam's instincts were right. He had sinned against God and his sense of how can I stand now in the presence of God. And so God then takes an animal, kills it, uses the animal skins to cover him. And from that we learn that, yes, sinful human beings need to be covered in order to come into the presence of God. We need to understand that our own covering, the covering that we make, will not be adequate. It will not be right. It will not suffice. The only covering that will work is the covering that God supplies. And the covering that God supplies reflects back on the nature of sin itself, that the wages of sin is death. That is, when sin happens, something must die. And if the sinner himself, herself, doesn't die, then something else must die in that person's place, something of God's appointment. What God appointed for Adam and Eve was that animal that he killed in order to cover them. Surely, that would be revealed to Abel and to Cain. Where God says, if you want to come to me, you have to believe that I am, that I exist, that I am holy. And in the reflection of that holiness, you would realize that you aren't. That I'm righteous, that you aren't. 
and for you to come into my presence, then there must be blood. Something must die. A substitute for you. Abel brought that. Cain did not. There's a sense in which you can get the picture that Cain is coming and saying, I don't need to do that. I've got everything I need right here. I've produced everything that I need right here. I can just bring him from what's in my garden because I've produced that. Certainly that will impress God. I don't need blood. I don't need to be covered. I don't need the sacrifice. I can bring what I've made with my own hands. I can bring it right to him and he will declare me righteous because of what is true of me, what I have brought to him. On the other hand, you can get a sense of Abel saying, I need to bring a sacrifice if I'm going to stand in the presence of God because I know that he is and I know that he's holy and that I am not and I know that what my father taught me what's been revealed by God is in order to come into the presence of God there must be holiness and thus there must be forgiveness of sin and so I'll bring this sacrifice into his presence And thus, his sacrifice was received, it was accepted. And in so accepting the sacrifice of Abel, notice how the author of Hebrews puts it. He says that he was commended, therefore, then, as righteous. Now, we can't miss this picture either, that righteousness... uh, can raise opposition. And that's what happened. Uh, In his righteousness, being rightly accepted by God, being accepted by God, being declared righteous, declared accepted, Cain got upset with that. And he wanted to snuff out this testimony, this testimony of righteousness, this testimony of righteousness that comes by faith. And so he killed his brother. But God said, sorry, bud, you can't shut him up. He's going to speak now forever. I see the amazing thing about being declared righteous by God through faith is that that lives on. Certainly we live on in the presence of God, but that testimony lives on. See, the legacy that we leave, this is just, this is just a little aside. This isn't a main point by any means. This is an aside for us. The legacy that we live isn't what we've done. The legacy that we leave with our children and our friends and those who are left behind is what God has done. That's what we leave. And the legacy that we leave is faith in Him. That's what always speaks. Bottom line, whether one's life is short or whether one's life is long, The impact that we have isn't on the basis of what we've done. It's on what God has done and our faith in Him. Abel lived a short life, relatively speaking. Frankly, Enoch even lived a short life, relatively speaking. He only lived 300 and something years. His children lived over 800 years. Um, But it was by faith. You want to leave something. You want to influence the next generation somehow. Believe God. And your life will speak forever. Abel's did. 
In fact, Martin Luther had a great line about Abel. He put it like this. He said, when Abel was alive, he couldn't teach even his only brother by faith and example. But now that he's dead, he teaches the whole world. He's more alive now than ever. So great a thing is faith. It is life in God. That's what speaks. And the lesson of Abel uh, is still exactly the same for us today. Because what he speaks is the answer to this question. How is it that we come into the presence of God? How is it that we're accepted by him? We could say it's by faith. And that's right, but a bit of a short answer. It's by faith in Christ. Because the same principle that God established in the garden, the same principle by which he received Abel is the same way in which he receives us, except now it's more fully blown. You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. And the same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And of course we remember Jesus, but let's just slide back and remember Abel for a minute. He came to God by way of blood. He came to God by way of sacrifice. He did that because he believed that God existed, that God existed, and that God was holy, and that he was not, and that he needed to come God's way, which was by way of blood. And that would make perfect sense. Because if God is holy and we are not, we know the wages of that, we know the penalty of that, that had been revealed way back in the garden. It's death, it's separation from God. You want to come close. You need to be covered. And Abel was covered in that sense, in the blood of that sacrifice. All the way up to Jesus, same way, but now we know the sacrifice. And he says this, he says, remember me, think about me. You want to draw near to God, you must believe that he is. That is, that he's holy and that you're not. But you also must believe that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That is, that there's benefit in coming to him. Yes, he will receive you in me, Jesus says. He will receive you covered by my blood. He will receive you covered by my righteousness. He is a rewarder of those who truly seek him. And so in this meal, Jesus says, I want you to come. But if you come bringing your stuff, if you come bringing what you think is your goodness, if you come bringing what you think is the work of your hands that will impress God so that he'll accept you, if you come because you think you're a good person, if you come because you think you've obeyed enough, if you come because you think you can satisfy all of who God is, then what will happen to you is what happened to Cain which he was cursed. But if you come, as Abel came, if you come saying, 
I haven't got anything that I can bring to God. All I, can, all I bring is my mess. All I bring is my sin. And I realized that because that's all I can bring, that I need to be covered. So I'm going to come in a sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to come in the sacrifice. In fact, I'm going to come in the sacrifice that God has made in Jesus. And I'm going to come in Him. You receive what Abel received. God will say, you're righteous. Let's pray. Father, here we are to worship, to be in your presence. We believe that you exist, that you're God, that you're holy, that you're the creator of all that is, that you own us, that you're the one who defines what life is to be, that you're the one who directs it all, that you're the one in whom we should find our delight. And Father, we confess to you that we haven't, can't, won't live as you've defined, following your direction, delighting only in you, Father, we see all that in us, what you call sin. And so we come now in Jesus. Because you, we believe that you are the rewarder of those who seek you in him. And the reward that you give to us, forgiveness of sins, yes. Eternal life, yes. But the great reward that you give to us is to satisfy our very souls with you, with your presence, with your life in us. So, Father, I pray that you would set apart this bread and set apart this juice in such a way that our minds would be wrapped around Jesus, that we'd be thinking upon him, that it would be true that we know that we're coming in him by way of his sacrifice by way of his righteousness. And Father, therefore, we come by faith in him. And that we would hear you say, deep within our own guts, that you've accepted us in him, that you declare us to be in him righteous. And that that would thrill us, God, that we'd live in the joy of that, the peace of that, all the days of our lives, regardless of what we see with our eyes, we would never mistake whose we are. Work that in us now as we come in Jesus. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. That is that you believe that he is and that you aren't, but yet that he's the rewarder of those who seek him because you come in Jesus, receiving and depending upon Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, 
as the Savior of sinners. And it's your heart's desire that the faith that you have in Him would translate itself into a life that's pleasing to Him. So let me ask you to come. These two rows down this aisle to my left, these two rows down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then when you do, say, God declares me righteous. Please come. As we come to the benediction, I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening in about 10 minutes or so. I remind you too of our time together on Wednesday. Please come. Uh, the response to the benediction is that we'll sing together the doxology. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before His glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, whom be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And together, let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.